Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience. He is currently the crime analyst in King County Sheriff's Office in Washington State. He holds a certificate in crime prevention and analysis from the University of Cincinnati. He is currently working on his PhD studying the impact of urban renewal on crime trends. He's here to talk about, among other things, the journey to crime. Please welcome Jamie Argetta. Jamie, how are we doing? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me on, Jason. Oh, I'm really excited. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure meeting you at the IACA conference in Chicago. And yes. certainly we got a chance to talk then. You were one of my folks that gave me a reaction to the conference. And we got into a little bit of a conversation about Journey to Crime. So I wanted to have you on today to talk a little bit more about that. All right. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I... It was just kind of a spur of the moment, and I saw an opportunity just to blabber on about it. So I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> well, we're going to blabber away today. All right. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Okay. Well, it kind of all started off when I was undergraduate and in college. So I went up to Marist College up in Poughkeepsie, New York, and originally I wanted to be a lawyer. And... Kind of along my journey, I discovered that being a lawyer was way too tough. It's too much studying, too much writing, too much kind of in-depth analyses. And so I decided to get my PhD instead because somehow I rationalized that would be easier. It's <laughs> <laughs> comfortable hold it. it has not been any easier. In fact, I think I think it's even a little bit tougher, but I digress. So along my journey in trying to get into the PhD programs and continue on my graduate career, I decided to do a couple internships, one of which was over at the Kingston Police Department over in Kingston, New York. And I interned with this fellow who, he introduced me to crime analysis and crime mapping. He bought me a book and he was just like, hey, just get at it, learn ArcGIS and figure out what's going on. So slowly but surely, I, be I became really intrigued with this field and just reading a bunch of papers, especially from like David Weisberg, Cody Tellup, and all the other greats like Cynthia Lum, I, I just absolutely fell in love. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever of how you can just simply reduce crime by putting police at a hotspot for like 15 minutes and bam, crime would go down. And since then, I've continued on my journey to being a crime analyst over here in the state of Washington and trying to finish up my PhD. So that's my little journey. All right. So how did you discover the internship at Kingston County? Quite, quite simply, there was a flyer and I was like, why not? Because I was reading research papers at that time. I was asking my mentor at the time, Julie Rains, over in Marist College, what I can do to potentially further my chances of getting into graduate school. And she just told me, just try to find research opportunities, try to find different internships that interest you and build up your resume. And so I saw a flyer for Kingston Police Department, and I simply applied and got in. All right. And then what did you learn while you were on that internship? I know you said so you mentioned about ArcGIS, but I guess more in lines of what did you learn in terms of so like the police culture and what about crime? 
Hmm. If I can recall correctly, what I primarily learned was just a program of what is crime mapping? What does it mean to map out all the crimes, hand it to officers, and see how they reacted? I... <laughs> I remember one of my first assignments, I was sitting there and they asked me for a crime map and my in internship supervisor wasn't there at the time, so I didn't know what to do. So I just started clicking around. I saw this thing, you know, hotspots analyses. I remembered a paper that I read and I was like, all right, let me conduct this. I printed out a blob on the on the map and then I handed it to the officer and I was like, hey, this is what I have, a blob on the map. And he goes, all right. He, he goes over to his deputies and he goes, okay, this is what the crime analyst gave us. Here's a blob. Here's the center of the blob. We're going to start patrolling those areas and we're going to come back to you in a couple of days, see, see how it's improved and see what's going on. So I kind of learned of the information that I give to them. They'll react to it. They'll, especially if I don't tell them anything, if I just hand them the blob, it's, they'll just kind of look at it and it's like, okay, you know, generally what to do, but unless I start giving them more specifics, if I, you know, kind of conduct my role a little bit better, then they'll be able to do more with more information. So I kind of learned that. I didn't realize at the time, but after, after completing that internship, I so slowly started realizing the imp the potential impact I could have, especially for officers and how, how much I could help them. Hmm. I find it interesting because you go on to complete two other internships before becoming a research assistant back at Marist College and then eventually becoming a graduate research assistant with the University of Cincinnati. So that definitely takes some tenacity to basically not give up after one internship. You ended up going three, but what did you learn with those other two internships at Dutchess County Sheriff's Office and then is that Mohunk Preserve? Yeah, Mo yeah, Mohunk Preserve. So at Dutchess County Sheriff's Office, that one was that one was in kind of an interesting one. I I was still getting my feet wet into the profession. I was still trying to figure out what exactly I can do with what information. And all, all I can remember was just trying my best to try to fuddle around with what I knew, what I've learned, what I've read, and how exactly to try to deliver it to the off, to the officers, to the sergeants, and to to different units. Unfortunately, I think my role there I wasn't able to accomplish much because I didn't know much of what I was doing. At mm -hmm. If I go back there now, I, I, try, I try to wild them. I'm like, look, look at what I've become. I'm, I'm going to make up for all my mistakes in the past. I'm going to try to do my best. Oh, <laughs> and I'm so, so sorry for, for how so new what, I was. What what mistakes do you think you made? A lot of them. <laughs> like like any like any new you know employee coming into an organization, and especially with like sometimes some supervisors kind of questioning as to what a crime analyst does we really kind of don't know what what exactly should we be doing and and how we should be conducting it and so and my time there was just a lot of like okay let me create some surveys let me see exactly what's going on let me try to make some products and let me see and i th i think a lot of my mistakes were just generally maybe handing out poorly done pieces of work even though i was trying my best i mm -hmm. i didn't realize exactly what kind of products i needed to make for them now now i do now i now i you know looking back i realize it's like okay maybe i should have done these surveys a little bit differently maybe i should have you know asked more maybe i should have spent more time with the with the sheriff's office and try to learn exactly what's going on there so i mean it, I, it, yeah i was just an undergraduate i was a research intern i 
you know, of course, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. So I, I don't beat myself up too much for it, but I still I still would like to give give, give my apologies to them if I could <laughs> and make it up to them any way that I could. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're keeping grudges. You probably have some <laughs> award named after you on what not to do, right? Exactly. They have a picture of me posted on the wall. Don't be like this guy. Don't be this analyst. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure that's not the case at all. But it, no, it's still no. impressive. You're in undergrad and you have three different internships. I mean, most yeah. people struggle to get one, and you had three. Plus, you were a student research assistant as well so there is a lot of opportunity to get some real world hands-on experience during your undergrad oh i'm absolutely and all these experiences were so valuable to me oh and about mohong preserve that one was an interesting research opportunity was that mohong preserve is up in near peekskill new york and essentially what they had me do was observe their at-risk youth wilderness program and see how it was progressing. So they had this program where they brought youths who were at risk from Newburgh, Newburgh, New York, and they brought them out into the wilderness. They taught them, you know, all about hiking, about nature survival, about the different climates around there and kind of the natural habitat. And they wanted to see if they can, you know, set these kids up for a brighter future because Newburgh at the time wasn't really kind of the greatest place to, to grow up in. It was a high crime area, very, very disadvantaged kids, especially, and they were minorities as well. So they had this inclination of if we could intervene early on, potentially we could set these kids up for a better future. So they brought me on to observe their program, make some notes and sort of write up a report of what exactly had progressed and presented to the grantors after the end of the internship to show them, hey, these are the results of this internship or of this program. Here are the kids progressing and can we have some more funding <laughs> to continue this program going on? And it was a little bit different direction than your, your traditional crime analysis because this was early intervention focused. So we were trying to get them before anything had bad had happened or before they had any participation in juvenile delinquent activities. Hmm. Now, did you measure it based on surveys? Yeah. So I had them take a pre and a post survey. So once I came in, I sat down, I read as much as literature as I could. I mimicked a pre and post survey that one of the one of the researchers had done beforehand about wilderness programs and its effects on at-risk use. I took the pre I took the pre-survey, handed it out to the kids, and I spoke with them. I had brief 15-minute interviews just talking to them about their experiences, their childhood, and about their hopes for the program. And then afterwards I handed them the same survey, the post-survey. And I interviewed them once more and I just kind of did simple simple grasp, but I try to communicate as best as I could as to how exactly these kids were helped along by the program. All right. And did you have any follow-up with any of the students or the kids after the program? Unfortunately not. And I really would like to kind of see if I could track them down once more and see where they are at, because I believe at the time they were still fourth or fifth graders. So by this time they should be, I almost want to say either well into high school or almost in almost in college at this point. So I, so sometimes I do wonder about what had happened to them. My professor at the time, Dr. Frank Miranda, we had written a paper about it and it was just, just describing exactly what the program was and what we found. And what we found was that, you know, 
impulsiveness, kind of critical thinking, decision-making really improved over time because what we kind of thought and hypothesized at the time was that them spending outside, not having too much immediate gratification, not having kind of outside influences really led them to kind of slow down and think about what they were doing. Hmm. That's interesting. It was interesting also, too, that you got a paper out of it. (laughs) Yeah. You got a lot accomplished at undergrad that most people don't get accomplished. I want to let you know that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I I was just I was just trying to put as much as on my plate as as I could, quite honestly. I just wanted to just put myself into the world of crime analysis, crime prevention and anything anything possible. So I took all the opportunities that I could, no matter if it was, you know, crime analysis related or not. (laughs) Okay. And then you decide to go to the University of Cincinnati, become a a graduate research assistant there and get your master's degree in criminal justice. Why'd you pick Cincinnati? To be quite honest, they gave me the most money. (laughs) (laughs) You and I are exactly the same. That's exactly why I did it. Yeah, you know, I I applied to, I believe, Arizona State University, George Mason University, and University of South Florida. I I applied anywhere that I could, and University of Cincinnati just kind of gave me the most stipend, and I was like, all right, well, I've never been to Kentucky or Cincinnati, Ohio, and I said, why not? You know what? Can't hurt to say no, and if I if I hated after the master's program, which was only a year, then I'd find somewhere else. But I ended up falling in love with a lot of the professors there, a lot of things that I could learn, and the opportunities that I was presented. Yeah, it is fascinating to me because when I went through that program, 2000 2001, it is a one year program. At that time, they were on trimesters, so I took three trimesters of classes. And then I internship. So technically, I was only there nine months and yeah. and got the the master's degree. And it really that first go around was it was eventful because I was there during the race riots of 2000. So it's always memorable to me. But at the same time, there really wasn't that strong connection to Cincinnati until I went back years later as the crime analyst at Cincinnati Police Department. And so you fall in love with that and you go not only get your master's degree, but then you sign up to be the the research assistant and start working on your PhD. Now, did you know right away what you wanted to do with your PhD? Quite honestly, all, all I knew was that I wanted to get into research and you know, like like following my undergrad dreams, I wanted to publish one of those papers that made an undergrad student be like, "Wow, this is so fascinating." And that <laughs> that, that that was just my entire goal was just to appease my younger my younger self, even though that was like four years ago. But <laughs> I just I just want I just wanted to be that person. I wanted to be that researcher and. Yeah, you're still making up for the mistakes as the research intern, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm still going to these conferences hoping that someone from Justice County will be there just so I could just be like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No. That's funny. So how did you decide on working on the impact of urban renewal on crime trends? Well, you see... I met this really, really interesting guy named Dr. John Eck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with Dr. John Eck and his kind of quirks. <laughs> oh, I am, but I don't know if the rest of the listeners are. So, Okay, so for the listeners, 
One one of his first conversations that I absolutely remember was I was sitting in class and one of his one of his masters and PhD classes, and I was just kind of dozing off a little bit. I'm sorry, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, I just remember tuning in at one point, and all he's talking about is lobster lips. How lobsters have lips, and I and it blew my mind. I was like, "What is this guy talking about? Lobster lips?" And I'm like, "I I, I must still be dreaming. I must still be somewhere else." Yeah. So he goes on to talk about lobster lips and how different organisms live on lobster lips, and then he talks about how like there's like the creation of the pencil and the mechanisms of jewelry box cases and how those came to be, and he just goes on and on and on about these different topics that are not absolutely crime crime prevention related, but then somehow he he ends up wrapping it all around in this nice little bow about ownership and crime prevention. And right then and there, I was like, this guy is quirky. I like him. I want to talk to him more. So I so I hunt him down after class and I start talking to him about different topics, seeing which one interests him and which whichever one I can think off of the top of my head so I can keep grabbing his attention over and over and over again. And eventually he gets tired of me and he goes, okay, what do you want? <laughs> And I'm like, hey, I just want to work with you, man. <laughs> like, uh, put me on a paper, put me to work. I'll, I'll do anything that you want. And so since then, we kind of uh, always talked. And <laughs> and it, one of my favorite memories is that we're just we're just laughing at one of the one of the stupid ideas that either I had or he had that we were just talking about like hotspots of like uh, animal crimes and mm-hmm. you know moose prevention crimes. <laughs> I, I don't know. We're we're just going on and on and laughing and. And then one of the professors walks walks into John's office and he goes, you guys are the weirdest bunch ever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, John is one of the co-creators of the Sarah model, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he says Sarah doesn't really mean anything, but I told him, I was like, you, ha- you should come up with a better story than that. You should say that, you know, Sarah is the love that got away and, you know, <laughs> or the dog that died when you were a kid. Start making up stories of how the name Sarah means so much to you. But he'll say, no, it's just, you know, what what is what we came up with when we were trying to assess the situation. So it's a very boring story when he says that. <laughs> yeah. That's why I told him yeah. to ham it up. It's it's yeah. Unfortunately, it's not a calling card to all the Sarahs out there to try to, to try to email Doctor John and say, "Hey, is it me that you're talking about? Has it been me?" <laughs> Unfortunately, not. But he he does have a knack for anything that you can make into an acronym. Like if if you come up with an idea and you attach an acronym to it, he's instantly hooked. He's like, "All right, can we do something with this?" <laughs> and I've tried for so many. So many months and so many years of trying to come up with something clever, and unfortunately, I couldn't. But but he definitely does have a lot of quirky ideas that I do like, and hopefully one day to build upon. But that's that'll be down the road sometime. Okay. But so, yeah. So so what are you trying hmm. to discover with your study on urban renewal and crime trends? Yeah. So so the interesting thing about urban renewal and to give you a little bit of background was after World War Two, the United States, specifically the federal government, kind of underwent a massive gentrification movement. They saw the inner cities kind of dilapidating. There was a movement called White Flight where the or primarily the Caucasians that were living in the inner city started moving away towards suburban developments and a lot and with them came businesses, with them came infrastructure, you know, public city works, and the cities just couldn't keep up the infrastructure that was 
put in place for these once already, once they're white residents. And a lot of black residents started to move in to the inner city because Jim Crow was ending. There was a, the civil rights movement and a, and a lot of blacks saw a lot of opportunity up north. There was higher wages. There was greater freedom. There wasn't kind of like that so much racial tension as the South. And so... They were like, okay, our inner cities are dying. These black residents are not paying as much as the white residents, and we can't seem to uphold the city. So the federal government decided to give a huge, huge cash injection into these inner cities and said, hey, local government, city government, state government, do, do what you can and revive the inner cities. We want the fanciest businesses. We want the bougie hotels. We want the bougie restaurants. We want to make these cities like New York City, like the way that we think it is today. And so these cities were like, all right, what we're going to do, we're going to take all these buildings, all the dilapidated buildings, the substandard buildings, the ones that, you know, even even that have minorities, black residents, we don't care. We're going to tear them down. We're going to take the black residents and we're going to take these minorities. We're going to put them somewhere else. And unfortunately for a lot of these residents, they didn't have anywhere to go. Even though the government gave them like a thousand dollars in cash, they just kind of left them out on the street. And and so they started to try to rebuild up these cities and a lot of projects failed time after time after time they were just kept getting delayed and delayed after permit after permit and these cities just got naturally worse and worse some cities thrived like new york city like seattle washington like a lot of the california cities as well and cincinnati even kind of thrived off of this money later on but it took a long time it almost took them 30 years to to get to where they are today and at the same exact time, the United States saw the biggest crime wave it has since the foundation of the nation. From 1960 until 1999, homicide rates spiked, robbery rates spiked, assault spiked, and just there was this huge wave of crime just happening to all these inner cities. And it was like, what's going on here? And for a while, a lot of criminologists try to figure out what was going on. And they hypothesize that, you know, it's possibly age, it's a decline in family institutions, it's the criminal justice system being overloaded. And then, you know, they also thought it was the economy. And that conversation happened for a little bit, but then it kind of stopped once once the crime started declining rapidly during the 1990s. They all shifted their focus into the crime decline and never kind of re-questioned why crime rose that much. So I was sitting down with John Neck, and we were trying to think of dissertation ideas in my first year because he really wanted me to get moving on it. And he said, you know, I read this interesting thing, and I don't know how interested you are in it, but he said, I read something about urban renewal. Check it out. See, see if it interests you. See if you like it. Because we were talking about places and gentrification at the time because gentrification and places kind of also interested me at the time. So... I read into this and I saw these old timey wimey kind of like really crappy. Sorry, sorry. I don't know if I can curse, but they were okay. But they were these really old, like hard to read PDFs, and they had all this money information, and nobody had studied this before. I spent nights looking paper after paper, reading polit political science papers after political science paper, and no one had linked crime and urban renewal together. And I was like, oh my god, this is fascinating. And everybody kind of stopped the discussion about, you know, the huge crime rise. And I was like, okay, this is what I want to do for my dissertation. So since then, I was like, okay, there has to be an association between the two. There's got to be 
some link and and I started collecting all this data. I started calling up different libraries for missing pieces of of the book, and it really just became kind of this like a, this little scavenger hunt to find all the pieces and figure out what if if something did happen and how much of an influence it had on the crime rise. So. What I'm trying to discover, long story short, is did the destruction of our inner cities and kind of the lack of care that we had towards minority residents influence the great crime rise of the 1960s through the 1990s? And a little teaser hint for everyone who's, who's a little bit interested, it did have an influence. How much of an influence? I'm not sure yet. Read my dissertation when it comes out. <laughs> there you go. Nice little teaser. When do you think yeah. you're going to be done with the dissertation? <laughs> You just have to ask the worst question that you could ask any PhD student that is right into dissertation. Oh, when are you going to be done? Because <laughs> quite honestly, I have no idea. I'm, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm still writing. I am, I'm working chapter after chapter. And when I, mm-hmm. whenever I finish the chapter, I send it to John Eck and he looks at it and he, and he hands it back to me, of course. And he goes, you can, you can write better. So I was like, mm-hmm. all right. So currently I just have just rough drafts of it. I already have my committee picked out. I already have kind of the data set just ready waiting there. Just all depends on how fast I can write and how well I can write. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to know, is it the mass exodus from urban to rural that impacted crime? Or is it the, the government programs for renewal that impacted the crime? So that's a really interesting question. And quite honestly, I have to dig deeper about that because that's almost the chicken and the egg question. It's like, well, we can look at the white residents fleeing that took all the businesses with them, that, that started sucking away all the money that they dumped into the government services that were in the inner city, caused the city to dilapidate. At the same time, we have to consider that the government was stripping away a lot of the institutions that were in place that allowed minority families to thrive in there and to have like their kids go to like after school activities to participate and play safely in the streets. So it's, it's a really interesting question, but my hypothesis and my thinking is that it's primarily the government that, that caused a lot of the crime to rise. Because once you start taking away the after school activities, once you start, you know, stripping away the money to schools and you don't provide any social services towards these struggling families, then you strip away the opportunities that they have to thrive. And so the kids are like, there's nothing in here. I can't get the things that I need and things that I want. And they look at the residents outside in the suburbias and they're like, they're living such a better life. I want that status. I want that fame. I want that wealth. And so they they may turn to crime. They may turn to other illegitimate means of obtaining those needs and wants. So as much as I don't want to point the blame in any one direction, I do have to say I I firmly believe that if the government instead try to put money into these into these social programs and started improving the buildings that were already in place instead of trying to remove them and rebuild them completely, maybe things would have gone in a different direction. But we don't know. That's a that's a whole what if question. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because as we're talking and as we're talking about Cincinnati, I remember during my time there as an analyst, it was 08 to 11, and mm. the big talk was the drop-in center by Washington Park, and then they build this, I don't know, millions of dollars school right next to the drop-in center, and they're like, mm. it was just a matter of time before they were going to move that drop-in center. And now today, it's my understanding with the police department that whole downtown area is its own district 
for the police department. It has that much influence. So oh. the river oh. area <laughs> with the stadiums up to yeah. over the Rhine, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, over the that Rhine, area yeah. now is is its own direct at the police department, and you have a whole revitalization through that whole area there. But when I was there, there was a park there that had a lot of homelessness, and they had the drop-in right. center that when people could get help in. And it's my understanding that they've moved that drop-in center from that location. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like I, it almost a natural tendency for a lot of people is going to be like the the natural blame is going to go towards the drop-in center. It's the drop-in center's fault if you place it, you know, right there. Of course, people are going to crowd there and gonna gonna do their normal kind of illicit means of vagrancy or kind of bring a lot of disorder to that certain part of the area. But you also have to think about. What kind of opportunities that drop-in center, or what opportunities are around that drop-in center, and what does that provide, and what does that mean for these, for these you know potentially struggling residents? So let's just say that we have a drop-in center again using Cincinnati over the Rhine, where there's a park, there's a lot of businesses, and right right then and there, it's like okay, how are these owners of these businesses dealing with these kind of customers? What are they doing? Are they implementing the right kind of you know security security devices? Are they making sure that they're managing the businesses well, or is it another problem? You know, it's it's all. I'm a firm believer it's all about the opportunities that are around the individual that, that either drive the crime or don't. And it's the opportunities that are created by the owners that thus kind of facilitate that natural progression towards crime or towards just conventional uh, activities, like, you know, just kind of walking around or, you know, playing in the park or just actually even doing nothing. Hi, my name is Kyle McFatridge, and I want to talk to you today about merging in construction zones. You've probably understood merging in construction zones to be getting over as fast as you can. This is not correct. Merging lanes are designed to be filled all the way to the point they end, and traffic then merges one vehicle at a time. Think about it logically. Would traffic flow better if people randomly stopped, put on their turn signal, and tried to get over? Or if both lanes were completely full? The lane is supposed to be full until the point you come to a traffic cone and can no longer fill it. So to the people that block that lane, swerve at cars, honk, yell, or flip off people trying to use the merging lane correctly, you are not only rude, you are wrong. You do not get angry at people who pass you in the left lane a couple miles from that construction site, so why would you then be angry at them for passing you at the construction site? So next time you come to a merge in a construction zone, remember to go all the way to the end and merge one car at a time. You will be doing it the right way and help make traffic flow much better for everyone even for those angry people. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jason Wilkins. Uh, I'm here with this public service announcement to talk to your kids about art school and be honest with them about their real ability. And maybe being an analyst is a better idea for them. What do you think you got out of the crime prevention and analysis? Certificate. So the crime prevention analysis certificate was just one of your standard. If you complete X courses, you you will get the certificate. So a lot of the certificates courses were taught by Dr. Jarnak, and mm -hmm. a lot of what I learned was the influence of places on on people's kind of a, what's the word that I'm looking for impulses. So so as I was stating before, it's like so if I walk into Walmart 
what is the first thing that I'm going to see? Am I going to see a lot of, you know, alcohol kind of unlocked? How are the managers kind of, you know, monitoring the situation? Is there any opportunity for me to escape? Who else is watching me? And how motivated am I to, to offend? And so a lot of this crime prevention analysis certificate kind of revolves around what can we do to start preventing crime and where do we start looking at the influences of crime? Hmm. All right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, so you make the decision. This sounds like a pretty big leap to me. So you're getting your PhD, you're <laughs> yeah. working on that, and then you take the crime analyst job clear across country in King <laughs> County Sheriff's <laughs> Office. So how do you go from Cincinnati to Washington? I'll give you the same answer as I did for the graduate school. Follow the money. <laughs> Show me the money. As, huh? cl as, as cliche as it is, follow the money. <laughs> but that's that's exactly what motivated me. Um, I, I was in my third year of the PhD program. I just completed my comps. And, you know, the fourth year in the PhD program, as you complete enough your dissertation, the your funding is not always guaranteed. It, mm -hmm. Your chances of getting funding drops to like 50%, or if you're on a project, or if you could find different employment opportunities, you're able to continue your funding. But to me, I didn't want to take the chance, and I was, was kind of tired of almost living on graduate stipend wages, if you can remember what that was like, yeah. <laughs> or if you can envision what that is like. It's not a lot. So I was just like, all right, let me find some job opportunities. Let me see if I could put my theory into practice. Let me see if I can use what I've learned at my time at the University of Cincinnati and help some other people out while finishing up my dissertation. So I applied anywhere and everywhere I could and Washington State, they said, hey, we'll give you some money. And I'm like, OK, say no more. I'm going to move there. I had no qualms about moving cross country. All right. It's, it's interesting, too, since you're <laughs> moving out there and you're going through this whole process. So this is still pandemic time, right? Yep. This is still I almost want to say. Yeah, it's almost like peak pandemic mm -hmm. that that I moved there. And just just as the pandemic was kind of slowly coming to a decline and people were starting to ease up a little bit, I, I was just moving to Washington and figuring out how to start making friends and how to get kind of adjusted into pandemic mode in Washington State. Hmm. Was the interview in person? Part of it was. So there was first formal test. And I had to essentially just do like a three-page write-up about the test, about whatever kind of assignment they gave me. Then it goes into an oral board. And then after the oral board, there's another formal interview about your fit. And that one's in person. And then after that, they either offer you the job or they don't. So what was the test like? So you got, was it a scenario question? Or was it just one question? And then you had to write? Yeah, answer? it yeah, it was a scenario question. I can't go too much into detail about it, but it, it was a scenario question and, and it was just try to be as creative as possible, knowing what you know and knowing what you what you can do for the city and see what ideas you could come up with. So I came up with a couple of ideas. I narrowed them down into about three, three-ish ideas and I presented it to them. I gave them the presentation. I presented my results and I'm, and they seemed to really like it. They liked it so much that I didn't get the job at first. <laughs> and and no, 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 but, 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 but I didn't get the job, but here's the thing. I, they liked it so much that they called me <laughs> afterwards and, like, and they told me, Hey, I think we have another position for you. That's, that's kind of open. Are you interested? Kind of and open. so they, 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 they kind of gave me like the little, gave me like the little donut on, 
on a fishing line and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to come along. I'm like, yes, yep, sure. I'll take whatever opportunity you got. And, and then they formally offered it to me after a couple months of hashing out what exactly they wanted me to do. Oh man. So you know the yeah. person that beat you out on the first position, right? <laughs> I did. Oh man. I have talked to a couple of analysts now that knew that they weren't the first choice. <laughs> and mm. I think that's always kind of awkward when you realize that you either weren't the first choice in, in a scenario or you're in a volunteer inf- or situation and you're the only one dumb enough to say yes. So like, but, but, I mean, it's, it, it does get kind of awkward when you're in that situation where it's like, you know, that the one person beats you out and then pretty soon you're following that person right up just a couple months later. Yeah, exactly. But I, I mean, I'm not a little salty, but you know yeah. what? <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still the one with the job. I'm still able to put food on my table. So I'm very grateful for that. Uh, so I can't complain too much. <laughs> okay. So then, you know, take me through though, just walking into the building first couple of months, cause you had interned, you had been in the research side. Now you're, in the actual crime analysis role mm-hmm. you know was it what you expected did you have difficulty adjusting i i did i had a little difficulty adjusting because like even though i've interned this was my first time i feel that i was more or less kind of on my own it was my chance to solidify who i was what i can do for the department and after making so many mistakes with Justice County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> I didn't want to repeat the same process. So so I, I had a little difficulty at first, you know, and, and they gave me plenty of leeway. They, they're like, hey, you know, your first couple, first couple of months, just figure out what we're about, figure out the culture, figure out, you know, what what Seattle's like and everything else because I never I never visited Seattle before then mm-hmm. I've only heard kind of all the news right raving about Seattle especially during the chop protest and the the riots the 2020 a summer of love riots and I didn't know anything about it since then so I come into the building I look around I greet myself to all the to the all the officers to the sergeants that are available and try to figure out what's what who's what and where's where and part of that was going on a lot of ride along. So I rode along with a lot of officers. I'm like, hey, just show me around. Show me where the where your usual hotspots are, or where you think your usual hotspots are. Show me exactly what you do, and don't don't even act like I'm there. Just just continue on about your daily activity. And so that that involved me going with you know the graveyard shifts. I stayed overnight at the precinct sleeping, and then nice. going on with the graveyard boys. Yeah. I, I had to. I, I didn't want to miss out on them. And then I wanted to go with second shift and swing shift and go with, along with, you know, the street crimes unit. And essentially, for the first couple of months, I was just exploring and tinkering around. And part of that was also me mapping out a lot of the crime hotspots. So I looked at where the hotspots were. I, I asked the deputies, I'm like, hey, does this map look right to you? You know, you there's a lot of activity downtown. There's some pockets over here, like near uptown or near down south. Does this look right to you during your shift? And, you know, some of them will say yay or nay. And then I'd adjust it, constantly figuring out, okay, what are, what are you know, kind of the UCR codes over here? What do they consider, you know, crimes? Or what's, what is their kind of like catch-all crime versus their specific crimes? And try to work it step through step. And at that time, I was... I was really just trying to figure out, I was like, okay, 
I know the I know this theory. I know that theory. I know you know like problem oriented policing. I know the I know the Sarah model. I know the crime triangle. Where does this apply here, and how can I fit it in, and what can I use this for? So, first couple months were really interesting and just trying to get my feet wet as much as I could. Now, Seattle has its own police department, right? It's the county and Seattle aren't a metro. Are they? So, yeah. So SP, SPD it takes care of city of Seattle proper. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. is all the way, If for some people familiar with Seattle, it's sort of like there's Seattle where you think of the Space Needle. And then if you kind of go like, a, like I almost want to say a couple blocks up, there's like upper Seattle. And then if you go all the way down south, there's lower Seattle. And then there's west Seattle. And then there's Bellevue across the water. And then there's Bremerton across the other side of the water. And SPD kind of only takes care of North, Central, and South Seattle. Meanwhile, in King County, we, we stretch further along it. So we go to North Seattle, just where SPD's district is. And then we go all the way down to like the southern parts of, of Washington state. So like, like we go further south than Seattle proper. And we also go all the way to the to the east side, so way past kind of like I almost want to say towards the mountains, and then we and then we end at the water as well. Hmm. So, so hopefully pretty... that gives a rough rough kind of image of some for some of your listeners. Yeah, about so it's a pretty where... large geographic area that mm-hmm. your the sheriff's office is responsible for, plus yep. all the the jail and arrest for the whole county, both Seattle and in the county, correct? Correct. Okay. So then were you given any direction as you're coming in or like what, what did they give you an expectation of what they wanted you to? No, because, 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 because here, here was the interesting thing was that, so I work for the Metro division. The Metro division takes care of the trains, the buses, and we help out with, you know, certain events and as well as the kind of high light speed rails. Mm-hmm. So the Metro Division, they haven't had an analyst for seven years. And they, and I was their golden chicken. <laughs> they were like, hallelujah, we have an analyst finally. <laughs> because they've okay. been waiting for one for the longest time. And so my... So- so the hot spots that you're trying to uncover in the beginning center around the transportation. Exactly. And that is something that I've that I've never dealt with before. I'm used to stationary targets. I'm used to places mm-hmm. and like the building down the street or the old creaky bar that calls on the police every single night. I'm used to those type of areas. I'm not used to moving targets. Mm-hmm. And so this was kind of a whole new world to me. I was like, what is it? What does this hotspot mean? What is it? What does it all mean? <laughs> and I look at this hotspot. I'm like, hold on, wait, is this where they're calling at? Is this where the crime occurs or is this the point of origin or do they, does it end up somewhere else? So a lot of my months were spent just trying to figure out the call structure, trying to figure out exactly, you know, where does the call of origin really indicate where the crime happened or did the crime happen a couple stops afterwards or a couple stops before? And yeah, so I spent all this time just trying to figure out exactly also how to visualize these hotspots. Because if you give them a, if you give them a blob, it's going to, it's going to be like, okay, these are all stationary targets, but sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. So I had to use the concept of hot streets instead of where we kind of take like a road segment and it's 
crime is concentrated between these two stops on this road segment. So I tell the sergeants and I tell the deputies, I'm like, hey, here's the segments. I'm not going to give you blobs. I'm going to give you segments completely new. And I want you to place this, these two stops. So like between 46th Street and, you know, like 173rd Street, I need you to start policing here during these hours. And I need you to be riding these buses because that's where the crime is occurring. On these buses, they're not they're not occurring at your bars. They're not occurring at your local churches. They're somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah, I had uh, Rachel Carson on the show about a month ago, and she's from the UK, and she talked about a similar project of having to use you know, the segments and get a situation, well, my purse was there on this stop, but then I looked, and then it was gone on the next stop. And that's basically the information that they were going to get, and I had to draw out and try to figure out which was the the segment of the train that was the biggest problem area. Yeah, exactly. So for us, it's very similar. It's a lot of, okay, so it happened on like the third run on the A-line at, you know, on coach 6078. And these were the operators. This is, you know, do we have video feed? Do Where were the stops and what was the time? Did they get on at the stop? And what stop did they leave at? And did they hop on another on another bus or did they split somewhere else? So right. it's, it really, it's really fascinating. It's not, it's not your typical, like I said, it's not your typical someone drives up to a convenience store, robs it, and then leaves. And it's not the same entry and exit point. Sometimes it's different. Sometimes it's stop earlier or later. And and with some of these offenders, I mean, they'll they'll ride the same they'll ride the same ride a lot of times because that's the main mode of transportation. But for other others, it's like it's a one off, and it's and you have to start piecing together exactly what was their routine like. Yeah. So I would definitely describe you as tenacious, as as a go getter, and <laughs> yeah. you, you, there's a theme going on here as we're talking about how you got into the profession. But I guess there there was a scenario where you got a little bit too tenacious. Maybe that's the way I should describe, oh. and decided to you know you, you wanted to observe a hot spot on your own. You want to tell that story? Oh dear God! Yeah, sir. Why not? All right, so. It, it was my first couple of months at the at the priest at the precinct and and just like I was you know saying I didn't exactly know what what was this hotspot I didn't know what was going on and I didn't quite understand how to visualize these hotspots and how to communicate the information that I needed to the sergeants and to the deputies exactly what they needed to do and what information I have learned from the data. So I mapped out a couple of hotspots, violent crime hotspots, because I was like, okay, you know, normal kind of vagrancy, loitering, you know, just public indecency. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, th those are concerning, of course. You don't want to, you know, see that every day. But I really wanted to see where the problems were at. So I mapped out these crime hotspots, and I hopped on my motorcycle, and I just rode down to these crime hotspots. I parked my motorcycle, which was probably the worst mistake, and I don't even know how it didn't get stolen. <laughs> I parked my motorcycle there and I just, you know, took off my helmet. I kept my jacket on and I just walked. I walked the whole beat, you know, like a, like a normal officer would, but just kind of like a, like myself. I'm, I'm a five, six guy. I'm not, not too scrawny, but not too built. And I just kind of walk around and I'm like, okay, let's, let's see. What does this place look like? What are, what are these buses? And of course, these violent crime hotspots also coincided with a lot of the regular violent crime hotspots that, that were non-metro related. So I was kind of getting the whole width of it. 
and I walked up and down these beats and I, you know, kind of saw some interesting things. I looked down the alley. I saw some drug dealing. I saw one guy with a couple of stakes and a shopping cart, I think. And I just kind of walked along, just trying to keep my chill. And I'm like, all right, all right. I'm looking at this hotspot and I'm like, okay, here, here's what it looks like. And I felt the need to, because if I was going to tell my officers, hey, there's problems ha happening here and this is exactly what's going on. And if they're going to go down there, I have to be willing myself to see what exactly it is and tell them what exactly I know. So I just put myself in that situation and then I walked there for hours. Vision like a real-time crime center bringing you up on their cameras. Like, who's this guy? Like, do we need an officer down there to check out this guy? He definitely does not belong down here. Yeah. What is he doing? Like, he's just walking aimlessly down, up and down these streets. Yeah, I was very much of kind of that concept of that person out of place. You, you, you see your usual suspects, you know exactly who they are, and then you see this random person come up, and it's like, who's this guy? What is he doing here? I, and that was and that was me. I, I just walked. I didn't I didn't let anybody know also that I was going down there, by the way. Yeah. So they had no idea that I was going to be in this violent crime hotspot. So God forbid something had happened. <laughs> Well, that would have been an interesting talk, uh, yeah. but I, I still got the interesting talk afterwards. So I, after, after spending kind of like the whole day down there, I head back to my precinct and, you know, my captain at the time, Captain Sale walks up to me and he goes, what's going on, man? And I'm like, oh, nothing much kind of went downtown. I went here and here and here. And he looks at me and he, and he goes, excuse me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I was just kind of like walking about. I'm, I'm sorry. Did you, did you need me here for something? You know, I kind of put up my calendar that I was away. He goes, no, you went down there without anybody. I'm like, yeah, kind of did. And he just looks at me and he goes, you're very stupid. You know that, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I, I, I kind of get that sense of that. And he goes, yeah, don't do that again. At least take a deputy with you. And I'm like, eh, I'm thinking fine. <laughs> so safe, safe to say, I won't be doing that again anytime soon. But if I do, I'll probably just drive by instead of just walking in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah on this show, a lot of people have recommended as part of their advice to get away from the desk and get out there and see what these crimes look like. Make it more than just data to you. Get some of that real world aspect to these crime trends. So that your your heart was in the right place. I'll say that. <laughs> my, yeah, my heart was in the right place. My my brain was somewhere. It was on vacation mode at that time. <laughs> but I completely agree. You know, I read a lot of research papers. I read, you know, I look at the data constantly. And there's a story to be told that is not communicated through the data alone. You read about these robberies. You read about, you know, kind of these snatch and grabs. And to really understand them, you just have to be there. And you have to see, okay, you know, how did this offender possibly even commit this crime was it you know just a moment of opportunity and how did that how did that opportunity even present itself so just being at these hotspots looking looking at the case and just putting yourself out there is really gets gets you a sense of what you can do next to like start preventing these crimes so if it's like they they see the opportunity to you know run outside the door right when right when the bus doors open and snatch a purse maybe it's like more cctv more signs or maybe even a delay on the bus doors opening like instead of having them open immediately like a five second delay with a barrier or something like that so it's yeah. it's really different if you put yourself out there yeah so i guess this is a good segue to the journey to crime as you're working the metro areas there you probably see scenarios where once you have identified the suspect how far he or she traveled to commit the crime the metros the buses light rails 
that impact on crime is really fascinating. I'm trying to think of the city that it occurred in. I've been in too many cities. I can't remember <laughs> which one it was. But I remember there was a Kmart. Hmm. A light rail stopped open right outside of a Kmart. Mm-hmm. And within six months, that Kmart was shut down because it had so much theft. Yeah. The joke was that people that lived out there would use the light rail to come into the city to work. And mm-hmm. the burglars would leave the city and go out <laughs> to the suburbs to commit the crimes. Now, that's a that's definitely a generalization, but that was the scenario that was being painted. Do you see a lot of that where people are really traveling long distances to commit crimes? That is an interesting question that I don't know the answer to because I, I try to figure out that question once before. And unfortunately, sometimes you figure out, especially a lot with these one-off offenders is that sometimes you don't find them sometimes you don't are able to get the correct address of where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and that's kind of generally an accepted issue in the journey to crime literature is that if we use our home addresses if we use their home addresses it's not necessarily where they are coming from Mm -hmm. but to answer your question they still generally are within the kind of the greater seattle area so they generally come from a couple miles away and they hop on the bus, they see an opportunity, and then they, they take advantage, and then they hop off the bus. Mm-hmm. And then where they go, I quite honestly don't even know. I, I don't know if they walk back home. I don't know if they wait for the next bus to go home. It It's a really fascinating question, but it's something that I, that I quite yet don't understand why. But we will often see that offenders do come from a couple miles away onto these buses, offend, and then get off the bus. And it's a really interesting problem, considering that what we know is that currently most people offend to places that they're familiar with. It's called, you know, routine activity theory and crime pattern theory. So sure. routine activity theory, essentially, you got a you got a place, you got an offender, and then you got a target. They're, the offender will take advantage of the place that they see opportunity with the lack of guardianship, and then they'll offend. And they'll pick places that they're familiar with. If you can envision like your local Walmart, everyone's familiar with the local Walmart. They know all the security cameras. They know all the greeters. They know exactly where they could possibly sneak a toy under their shirt. But if you go to a foreign Walmart, like let's just say one of the, one of the ones in sub, the suburban areas, you don't know that area. And so when you tell stories like, you know, that local Kmart and offenders coming from far away, that's really fascinating because it's like, why? And 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 why? Yeah, just just why are they traveling so far away to these different areas? And why are these offenders hopping on these buses and, you know, offending and then just kind of walking away? Like, what's what's the rationale there? It's almost it's almost a mystery. It's an easy target for them. Right. There's that lack of guardianship. There's that lack of prevention that enables them to get away with the crime. But but see here at the same time is that the lack of guardianship, like guardianship is often kind of thought of as as the amount of people or the people who can stop the crime. Mm -hmm. When you think of a bus are normally kind of crowded or at least they have like two or three other patrons there. Mm hmm. So it's like you would think that they would look at these other people and, and maybe kind of see them as potential guardians and people who could stop the crime. And so it, that's just something fascinating to me. I mean, maybe by thinking of crime is almost still almost too cliche of like, you know, the robber going into like the liquor store with only one clerk and holding up the liquor store and taking advantage of that. Maybe maybe my thinking is still too cliche, but it's yeah. still 
it's all kind of puzzling as to even with people around and even even with the security cameras up above and the signs posted that they still decide to do this anyways. And they, and they even still decide to go out to these suburbs still and take the opportunity to run away in the suburbs in a foreign location. Yeah. And it's that's yeah, puzzling to me. But to answer yeah. your question is that they don't necessarily come from like, you know, New York City all the way to Seattle just to commit the crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they will come from like northern Seattle down to like the Space Needle area and they'll commit a crime and then they'll somehow hop back up to northern Seattle again. Or they'll they'll go over to like, you know, kind of the Bellevue area, which is a couple miles away only accessible by, you know, bridge and or and or bus and commit a crime there and then go back to Seattle, Seattle proper. And it's really what's there that's different than the Walmart over in Seattle proper. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to people, they're just not paying attention or they don't have their valuables in check. Right. And it, yeah, it comes an opportunity. The Kmart, I believe they just didn't have that security in place. Yeah, because they didn't feel that they needed such security. But by the time, really, they it was just way too late. By the time they realized what was going on and did try to curb it, but as I said, it was probably about six months before it was gone. In Chicago, that was where the IACA conference was, where mm -hmm. we met. When I got off my plane in Chicago, they did something that I've never seen at any other airport. Mm -hmm. During the baggage claim, mm -hmm. they had a officer in baggage claim and had it roped off to the where there was only one way in and one way out to the particular baggage claim. And right. I had to show either an ID or my ticket or my baggage claim stub that luggage was mine. And that's that is very interesting. So what does that tell me? That tells me that they have a problem <laughs> with people coming in and stealing people's luggage. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I also think that your and I's experience of the airport at Chicago is very different because mine didn't have that. I just wandered around, picked up my bag and left. <laughs> so. I don't know. And maybe it's just the one carousel because it was right by the, the exit. So maybe mm -hmm. it was just the one that they they determined was the problem child and decided that's what they had to do. But it was still fascinating because I was like, oh, am I? in danger right now <laughs> like, <is it> like, <laughs> yeah. like why is my stuff gonna get stolen kind of thing i'm so i mean but it's a very interesting solution to a to an often seen problem i mean have, have you been to aldi the, the aldi's yes. grocery store yes okay it's it's exactly like that you have to you almost like are in a rat in a maze you have to walk along the aisles just to get to you know, the exit point. So once you enter, you're immediately blocked off. You can't go to the other exit point. You have to walk the aisles. You have to go through a little turn store. Or I, I don't know if yours had that, but back in Florida, when I lived in Florida for a little bit, you had to pass through the gate and then you would, you know, collect your items, go through the little rat in the maze, go up and down, up and down, up and down until you got to the cashier, pay for your items and then leave. So it's, it's very similar to that. And it's a very interesting solution that they would have like someone kind of check IDs. I mean, I would figure that they would just kind of implement the same kind of rat course in an airport to prevent people from, to prevent spending too much money, especially on an officer, because that has to be costly. Yeah. Well, I was fascinated that somebody would think of us like, oh, I'm going to go steal somebody's luggage. 
at oh, a, I mean, an airport. I mean, think about how much valuables you steal in luggage. I could, I could easily see why like people would start stealing luggages. I actually had had a thought of that before. Like, huh? <laughs> well, now, now I'm going to be looking at airports and thinking like, how how easily could I take someone else's luggage? Especially the amount of times that it goes around the carousel. Like, wow. Oh, yeah. Huh. But yeah, especially <laughs> if it's not there, you're just gonna then you're just gonna report it lost, right? And then they're not gonna be able to come up with it. Exactly. Hopefully, not giving any any ideas to anyone out there. Don't don't do this. Not <laughs> not recommended at all. <laughs> Very wow. poor choice if you decide to do that. Please, no one. <laughs> yeah, but it is fascinating when you when you hear of stories of of offenders traveling long distances to commit a crime because. In one aspect, you do want to make sure that you are really familiar with the area so mm-hmm. you know exactly who's supposed to be there when, all the back roads, all the be familiar with that. But, you know, there are scenarios where you also don't want to get recognized. And it, it, and so exactly. you you could find a target rich environment city miles, mm-hmm. you know, hours away and have that be your hunting ground yeah no to, absolutely to, to do and then go back and so you're not really that familiar with with the area but you also don't worry about getting caught or somebody recognizing you yeah see i i expect that of the more experienced criminals like the career criminals those 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 kind of like cliche ones that you see in the movies where they're like they're like oh i'm gonna pull off this bank heist <laughs> and x city away you know they've been doing this for 30 years they're they're professional like those those type of criminals we we do see that. We we have evidence of that happening. Like that's 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 something that is known. But when it comes to like newer newer offenders, not not so much. And so that's that's what really fascinates me when people kind of bring up these stories about like that came at that Kmart or you know traveling from different far ways. I'm like, man, that's some really ballsy ballsy moves they got there because yeah, that's it's a completely unfamiliar location. You don't, you don't even know if you're going to get away, but it must be that the opportunity and the chance to get whatever they're after is so, is so valuable that, that they disregard all other like po- possible chances of getting apprehended. It's truly a fascinating phenomenon that I still have yet to wrap my head around. Maybe one day I'll, I'll figure out what's yeah. going on. That's just the, the standard burglary and theft that we talk about. It's this whole level of online scams and online dealings. Somebody on Facebook today was mentioning their bank sent them a new debit card and mm-hmm. he went to register it. And they told mm-hmm. him that somebody had already cloned his numbers. And he's Whoa, like, how what? is that possible? I just received yeah. it in the mail today. And huh. they said, we got to send you a new card. Jeez, oh, yeah. Yeah. What? What? That's oh, my amazing God. to me what they can come up with and scam and get information. Oh. And geez, yeah. Yeah, especially with the advent of like you know uh, online bec- becoming so prevalent and so oh, ingrained yeah. in our society today, like you'll have people just just Wi-Fi scanning people's like you know credit cards and everything else in an instant, and next thing you know, the the credit card's overcharged and the, the scam the scammer or the uh, the person who steals the information gets away with like thousands of dollars of worth of merchandise, and it's it's really fascinating as how to society is progressing, and especially criminals are adapting to technology and different opportunities that are presented to them yeah hmm 
All right. Well, hey, well, let's move on. We're going to talk about personal interest. You mentioned the motorcycle before, and so you are a motorcycle rider. I find it fascinating, though, that not only do you ride motorcycles, but you practice racing. Yeah, yeah. No, I – so – I, I absolutely love motorcycles. I love everything about them. I could go on and on and on. This podcast could possibly go on for six hours of me ranting and raving about them. But I recently got into going on the track and trying to start to compete competitively. I've been riding on the road for about 10 years. And, you know, sometimes the road gets dangerous. People are texting and driving. People drink and drive. And especially the way that I want to go faster and faster and faster and, you know, take take these curves at higher speeds it starts getting a little bit too dangerous and recently i was like all right let me keep it to the track let me put my skills to the test let me see how skillful i am and i'll, I'll bring my bike out there and i'll start you know just going as fast as i can and seeing if i can if i can actually compete and we have yet to see because i've yet to try it out but hopefully one day i'll I'll get there. <laughs> yeah. So what's the fastest that you've gone on the street or on the track? Those well, I wasn't going to get you into trouble. You set yourself up so that you were on a practice racetrack. So you could have okay. just said it was on the okay. practice racetrack. Um, well, all right. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm sure the statute of limitations has long gone for speeding on a bike, yeah. <laughs> but, but the fastest I've gone was 160 on a highway. And then the fastest on the track was about 180, 190. Yeah. Just on one of the straightaways, but no, it's, it's, I, I, it's just the freedom of the road. It's just the pace that you have to think at. And it's just, that's, that's it in your mind. It's all you yeah. think about. It's almost like a form of therapy for me, especially to de-stress and just get away from, <laughs> you know, all the hustle and bustle of the inner city, all the criminals and all the things that we have to think about on a daily on a day-to-day basis. It's something different. And so I, I absolutely love it because I don't have the time to think about anything else. If, if another thought pops into my head about, you know, chicken and rice or something like that, and I'm not concentrated on the road, then higher chances of me, you know, accidentally messing up or me making some some stupid error you know increase and so i it it's just easy for me to block all those things out so i so i absolutely love it i absolutely love taking it on and i've met uh, different people from different walks of life on it i've met a lot of you know people who are very very skilled racers to just kind of to actually your average criminals as well i've met a lot i've i've also somehow managed to make some acquaintances with some with some street racers and one of those and one of those motorcycle clubs so i've i've managed to put myself in a variety of situations where i just meet them and make friends with them but that's kind of the commonality between us we all ride motorcycles and i absolutely love it you have a future in undercover outlaw motorcycle gang work <laughs> no absolutely not I, I i know someone who did that and i absolutely would not would not do that it, uh, he told me stories about having to travel across a state stage just like early in the morning at the a.m he gets a call and then he has to do a run with his buddies like all the way up to maine rain or shine and he has to deliver these packages or he has to do this especially as a prospect mm-hmm. and and, you know, the amount of events that he has to go to, even if he has work, even if he has like family obligations, he has to do that. And I'm like, that's that is not the life for me. And and I've definitely hung out with like the street racers who who kind of like, you know, I, I don't know if you hear, I'm sure some of your listeners will sympathize with this. But sometimes you at night, especially during the summertime, you hear them screaming down the highway, you hear mm-hmm. them. 
you know, revving and everything else. I've hung out with those those individuals as well who have nothing better to do. And it's <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting life, I'll tell you. You'll you'll meet you'll meet some of the straightest people ever, like, you know, a couple attorneys, a couple people in there, but you know what? It's we all come under the same umbrella, just loving motorcycles. <laughs> gotcha. So back to the high rate of speed. I'm trying to think mm. how fast I've been in a car. It was definitely over 120, but, yeah. you know, it's in a car, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. the sound, the feel is different, I would mm. imagine, than having no roof over your head and traveling 160, 180. You have a helmet on, but that feeling yeah. of the air blowing on you, the the being in the outdoors and the, the, the engine... I may, does the engine still run pretty smooth at 160, 180, or uh, do you start <laughs> uh, to get the shakes? And, What's what goes uh, on at that and, speed? And, and, it, it depends on it depends on your bike and exactly mm -hmm. what what you have and how how fast it can go and sort of like the the making model of, of the engine. But like for for instance, a lot of Harley riders, a lot of people who ride Harley, sometimes they have these big windscreens. They're on a nice comfortable couch and mm -hmm. they could pin it. They could obviously pin it. They they don't have to think about it. Like one of my friends, he has a Harley CVO. Like think of like the big the big white Harleys, and he could he could comfortably go like 160, not even break a sweat, not even think about the engine roaring or anything else and he'll ride in a straight line on a sport bike you have to you have to lean all the way forward on like your typical crotch rocket and try to duck under the windshield so that the wind goes above you and yeah you'll feel the vibrations of of the street you'll feel the vibrations of like the engine especially depending on what comfort comforts you have on your bike and and if you try to if you even try to like stand up or anything you'll get the gust of wind just thumping against your chest and pulling you back and and when you look at your hands afterwards, they'll be like purple and you'll be like, man, that was really stupid of me to go that fast. <laughs> but you know what? You're like, man, I loved it. <laughs> Let yeah, me do it, again. do it again, right? <laughs> exactly. So the, the feel is very different and it'll vary from motorcycle to motorcycle. Like when I first got my first one at, I want to say 17 years old and, and it was a little 300 and I went 25 miles an hour. Boy, did I think that I was going 100 miles an hour with the wind beating against my chest. And I was like, this is so fast. Oh, my God. And now that I've graduated onto those big boy bikes, I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this this will go any speed without breaking a sweat. <laughs> oh, man. All right, Jamie. Yeah. Well, our last segment of the show is Words to the World, and this is where okay. I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? My words to the world, it'll just be stay weird, man. You know, a lot of a lot of ideas, a lot of creative creative ways of preventing crime or thinking about th the way that the world functions and people think comes from just thinking about random stuff like like going back to the story about dr eck and his lobster lips a lot of his ideas just came from different things that he was ranting about like you know pencils lobster lips and how they apply to to way that we can prevent crime and just how you can take ownership and responsibility for your place so and some of my some of my ideas also have just come from me just reading different about different things about interacting with different people so Really, just stay weird, man. Don't don't be afraid to branch out. Not everything has to be all ones and zeros. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. All right. Sounds good, man. <laughs> but I do appreciate <laughs> you being on the show, Jamie. Thank you so much, and you be safe.
Dude, thank you. You too. I, I appreciate the time to talk about and rave about motorcycles from, from my stupidity to my tenacity. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.